Hello and welcome. You're listening to Requires Improvement, a podcast that aims to critically discuss all aspects of the current UK education system from an unashamedly left-wing perspective. With the support of listeners and guests, we want to find out what's going well and what really requires improvement. I'm Lee, I'm a teacher at a local secondary school and a union rep, and today I'm joined by... My name's Nick, uh, I'm a teacher in a humanities department and I'm a union rep. My name's Charlie and I'm a primary school supply teacher. I'm Lauren and I'm a science teacher. And this week we will be joined in our discussion with our first guest on the podcast, Dr Alex Collins, who I'm going to invite to say hello. Hello. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, um, introduce myself. Nah, I, I, I think I did that for you, didn't I, quite rudely. But uh, we'll... Uh, you know, um, we will obviously be hearing from uh, Dr. Alex Collins, who's com- calling uh, into us all the way from Athens, and he's going to be discussing his experiences both as a teacher in the UK uh, and also uh, his involvement in community organising for the benefit of uh, refugees in Athens. So um, before we begin our uh, discussion with uh, Dr. Alex Collins, we will start with our first segment, Who Who Requires Improvement? by going round the table to ask everyone who or what this week stands out as requiring improvement. It could, it could be something small and petty or a significant issue whatever it is that's been on your mind this week that deserves a mention this week i will be talking about staff retention because it appears the department for education is uh, becoming ever more slavish in its uh, desire to keep teachers in the profession whilst also with the entire rest of their policy uh, slate uh, driving teachers out of the professions we're going to be talking about uh, some of those inconsistencies there uh, my requires improvement is going to be around school careers and I'm going to try and link it into the Green New Deal. My requires improvement is going to be about a certain school I've heard about that I don't work at as choice in how they decided to um, celebrate Black History Month in a way that, as you'll hear later on, doesn't quite cut it. Yeah, and um, my requires improvement this week is about an Australian man that decided to to withdraw his son from secondary school. Uh, Sorry, I think, no, sorry, primary school, because they were learning about climate change and he didn't want his sons being indoctrinated into the cult that was climate change. So, yeah. Right. Okay. So I think I'll go first. Um, So my requires improvement this week uh, is aimed squarely at uh, the Department for Education. Uh, A news article published today in The Guardian uh, talks about science and language teachers to get a £9,000 staying on bonus and that those who work in English state schools for four years after training will be eligible for payments. And it's interesting that this is still the, uh, the only thing that I can see the government practically doing, aside from making one YouTube video that actually addresses the incipient, you know, retention crisis in teaching. You cannot have a profession where 50% of the people currently in it have five or less years of experience. And it also, we're on a collision course with a so-called baby bump, where basically there's just going to be, through the vagaries of the mass reproductive cycle of this nation, there's going to be way more kids than there are teachers physically to staff those classrooms. And so the Department for Education, in their wisdom are, again, playing sort of the hierarchy of the subjects. Uh, Obviously, they've identified they have the most chronic shortage in uh, science and languages. Uh, I'm sure Brexit's not at all uh, a factor in that as well. But um, they still don't get it. They think that cash is going to keep people in this profession. And 
you know, as, as, as much as we welcome higher payment for teachers, Lord knows, I think all teachers deserve a, a retention bonus uh, just for sticking around. Um, this will not solve the retention crisis. It's simply a case that the things driving teachers out of the pre- profession, it's not pay. It's actually the working conditions that we daily live under. It's all the things that we talk about on the show. You know, huge over-accountability, uh, intense exam factory-style workplaces. This is what drives people out of the profession. And, four, you know, nine grand, four years into it, simply ain't going to keep you around. No, and like, as a science teacher, obviously, well, not that I would benefit from this now, I probably missed it, but um, the the division that it creates as well, like, imagine you're there and you're not a science teacher or MFL teacher and you haven't got this staying on bonus. Like, again, that creates this sort of division and it's just not fair. Like, give everyone the money, just stop, you know, picking and choosing and kind of pitting people against each other. Like, it's just not really fit for purpose. Uh, yeah, I agree with all that. Uh, my requires improvement is about um, school careers. Now, there are some really hardworking school careers officers who do loads of great stuff with um, trying to sort out what kids do after school, arranging work experience and things like that. But I don't want to sound too much like Aaron Bastani, but automation is coming and it's going to change absolutely everything. Um, and there just doesn't seem to be... It just, I don't know, I just feel like they kind of look at careers and think it's just always going to be the same. It's always been the same. Everything's going to be the same. But it's not. So many careers are just not going to exist. Um, and this is why the Green New Deal needs to be spoken about more. Firstly, it's a failure of journalism that they haven't picked up as a big moment coming out of um Labour Party conference. But also, it would be difficult for us as trade unionists to kind of ram it into schools and try and get schools to realise it. Because like, where I work, some of the big employers that have the really good jobs are like uh, Airbus, BA Systems, Rolls-Royce. Um, you know, I had a kid on work experience who was really excited because he got to work on a fighter plane engine. And he was like, yeah, I think it's from the Yemen. I'd be like, well, do you know what that plane has probably been doing in the Yemen? <laughs> you know, and actually really we need to be, yes, training engineers, but making them realise that the best jobs are in green technology. Um, and that is how we solve things. Um so, yeah, I don't know how we saw that out, but but we should. I definitely agree. I don't have anything to suggest that would solve it, but something I'm going to bandwagon onto that is that not only do we need to think about how we support children in thinking about careers that are fit for the future, uh, but we also need to be helping them understand and get their heads around the idea of unions, because uh, that's really something that isn't discussed enough. So not only get yourself um, a job that's, you know, sustainable and positive and and how get the skills to link into that but also how do you uh, become a part of your union and why is it so important because as you said the the unions uh it's great that they back the green new deal um but they're right in thinking that you know we need to have uh, a plan that works to support them from transitioning from uh, one job to the next as we go to a greener future but yeah it's a really good point uh my requires improvement so i gave a little teaser before I was talking to a friend uh, very recently and he told me about um, how it's Black History Month, as his um, multi-academy trust is aware. And they thought, that's fantastic, um, but let's condense that into rather than a month. And already, we, we know we've discussed before, there's already <laughs> problems with the fact um, that Black History Month allows um, teachers and senior leadership to sort of ignore black history for the rest of the year. But they condensed it, not just a month, to a singular day. 
and that might already uh, worry some of our listeners. Uh, it gets worse. Um, it wasn't just black people who and black history that was celebrated uh, on this day. They decided, uh, why why give them the whole day? Let's have um, that shared with LGBTQ plus history and the history of disabled people. Um, in one day. In one singular day. So that's right. fantastic day of learning oh, they must goodness. have had. So obviously Box the. Tick. The, yeah, the woke perspective is everyone's, you know, together and we're understanding it all. It's so diverse, but there's no intersectionality that's taking into account this this mess that's saying that the rest of the year is able, it's white, and it's straight. Like, is that that's that's a suggestion almost? Like, I, you'd like to think, you'd like to be generous in saying that actually, of course, your teachers and my friend I know does a really good job. At, um, weaving in um, LGBTQ plus history um, into his teaching, uh, but he doesn't like have um, all the knowledge. Teachers should be working together to get all of it um, into every day. But no, it's one day, so one lesson per group. Uh, I'm not going to go into all the details about the the individuals that are going to be celebrated on that day, but one clue is none of them were women. None of them. Oh. Okay. And none of them were about struggle. It was all about just people who'd d- done something and, and they also happened to identify as, as one or more of these traits. Yeah. So, yeah, um, my requires improvement was the uh, man that decided to take his uh, son out of school because they were preaching about climate, well, in his words, preaching about climate change. And um, this is in Australia, actually. Um, and he, uh, I think he works for, an, I know he's a pilot, that was it, that I read. And yeah, he's essentially just, you know, he doesn't want to believe it. He's a climate change denier. So it's kind of got parallels with people taking their children out of lessons about LGBTQ plus um, people. Um, and it is, you know, it's setting this precedent that actually I don't agree with what 99% of scientists say is true. Um yeah, and the one percent are probably paid by all companies. That's that's it. Like that is the only explanation. Um, so yeah, so essentially he took his son out, and I think it sets a really dangerous precedent about um, parents being able to kind of, you know, who've read something on YouTube decide to take their kid out of what is actually a really vital part of education and is true. Um, and yeah, that needs to stop. Thank you. Well. Having been round the room, I think it's now only fair, uh, having made him uh, listen patiently to us banging on, uh, we're going to talk a little bit now to our guests. So I just want to explain why uh, I wanted Alex to come on our show. Uh, Obviously, Alex uh, is able to talk to us about two uh, really interesting topics that I think are worthy of our focus. Uh, Number one is the fact that uh, Alex is from a very academic background. He has a PhD in pure mathematics, and he thought he would try and uh, put that, you know, learning to to use for the benefit of the children of this country. Uh, Sadly, his experiences uh, did not work out well, and uh, after the end of his uh, NQT year, he's made the decision to not be a teacher for now at least and uh, we're going to be talking to him a little bit about uh, certainly not in the mainstream UK education system well uh, thank you for the clarification Um, but also we're going to be hearing about Alex's work as uh, an organiser uh, for various charities and voluntary groups uh, in Athens uh, that are seeking to aid the uh, um, rather awful humanitarian refugee crisis that is occurring on the shores of of the Mediterranean. Um, So hopefully 
most listeners to the show won't need too much background as to you know what is happening in Greece. Uh, but just to give a short summary, um, you know, through a, well, it's a multifaceted crisis with with a number of complex and interlocking causes. But it runs the gamut of the misery of of the human experience. We're talking. Um, you know, wars like in, in Syria and Libya. We're talking about, um, you know, economic uh, devastation and famine. But we're also now talking, unfortunately, about climate change. Uh, it is, you know, this refugee crisis is not going to go away. Um, I think most uh, re- reasonable commentators on this issue would would could only conclude that this has been dealt with appallingly by our government and the European Union. And, and I think, in fact, a lot of um, the European Union's greatest fans sorely underestimate the depth of feeling of people's real anger about how human lives are being basically thrown away in the Mediterranean. And, um, you know, uh, Alex, you, you, you're on the front lines of that experience. But before we get to you know, what, what you're up to now in your current work. Can we just turn the clock back a little bit and talk about, you know, I'm going to invite you to talk about why you became a teacher and uh, what it was like uh, working in the UK education system. Mm. Um, yeah, so as you say, I did my PhD uh, and then I decided that I wanted to, you know, help the children or something. Um, <laughs> it seems I, it, it, I, it I always... Kind of like partly related to my own experiences um as a child uh and and maybe not feeling that my my math education at school was that great and then talking to um you know friends as someone who who studies math at university to a high level you have friends and often you you set they ask what you do and you say well i'm a mathematician and they say oh i hated maths you know i was terrible at maths and my diagnosis of this was um bad teaching, not necessarily bad teachers, but bad structures, etc. And I felt, I suppose, that maybe in some way I could try and improve things because they required improvement. Oh, nice. Um, He's on brand. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I uh, was a TA for a little bit, and then I did my PGCE, um, and then I uh, did my NQT year at a particular school, which was not a very pleasant experience uh, and led me to feel that I, I, I couldn't really make that much of a difference within this system or certainly didn't want to at the sacrifice of my own health and sanity. Sure. So I left. What were the main things that attacked your health and sanity, would you say, at that school? Management. 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 Yeah. I mean, just the absolute shambles that is the, the state of senior and, and middle management in all schools, but particularly this one, like to the point of almost criminality, uh, it seemed to me, um, in terms of the absolute dereliction of duty when it came to care for the children in our care, um, but also just shady business. Um, um, can you elaborate yeah. on then, what shady business went down? I No, because I don't know specific details and I don't want to. Um, yeah. <laughs> But like, just kind of slightly strange hiring practices, for an exa- for an example. Okay. Um, but that's really by the by. I mean, really, it's you know how the school was run in terms of um, looking after the children or not, as the case may be. But then, on, but then also in terms of kind of resourcing and like the big picture question is, you know, not enough money, not enough teachers, and so you're trying to teach math lessons to classes of thirty six children um, with you know very little support and. It's just, it just doesn't work. Like you can you can struggle and try your best, but 
the kids aren't getting the education they deserve. I, it's no really interesting. You kind of sacrifice yourself as a teacher, yeah. no matter how many hours you put in. Like, you can't solve the fact that when there's 36 children in the classroom with a variety of, you know, educational or behavioral needs, that a lot of them are going to slip, slip by. You can't be, you know, talking to all of them all the time. Um, it's really funny you say that because I went to a school where I was a class of 36 like in my top set maths like it was exactly the same mm. scenario that you describe um and it is hard like I just think even from the perspective of being a student you know it's one thing to be a student in a class of 28 but you know in a class of 36 like we're sitting on the ends of tables and trying to literally exactly. find places to like be like we could just teacher, get a bit of desk I couldn't move around the classroom, you know. There's just physically too many people in there to be able to reach some of the kids. You're, like, pushing people out of the way to be able to, you know, talk to someone who's got their hand up. Mm. It's ridiculous. So, um, needless to say then, Alex, you uh, you decided to get out, which, uh, you know, is I was appalled uh, to discover when you told me, because uh, I thought, you know, th- th- you're exactly the type of teacher we should be trying to keep in the profession. That links back to, right. you know... Um, I, um, Alex, obviously um, things didn't work out for you in UK education, but what have you decided to, to do next with your time? With my time. Okay, so um, when I when I left teaching in the UK, I, I went to Palestine um, and did some volunteer work there for a while. Uh, and then I had to leave Palestine because the Israeli authorities sometimes aren't too happy with you when you do volunteer work there. And so I came to Greece, to Athens. Uh, I'd met some I'd met some people out there who had been doing volunteer work in a community centre in central Athens. Uh, so I came here. That community centre had actually shut down by the time I got here. Um, and so then I basically went around knocking on doors of various squats and things like that, asking if they wanted any help. Um, and here cool. we are. So um, could, you, could you talk to us a little bit then about the organisations that you've been involved in and what they're up to? Okay, so um, one of the the organisations that I do work for is uh, not currently educational, doesn't do any education stuff. It used to, um, but not at the moment. It's called the Cora Community Centre, um, and we run three spaces in, in Central, uh, a free shop in Exarchia, uh, which is like a shop except we give everything away for free, um, which is mostly clothes, toiletries, toys and kids stuff. Uh, mostly serving the refugee and migrant community, um, but also anyone in need, basically. Um, We're also in process of opening up a kitchen, which will be serving free food to people who want it. Um, And the third space is a kind of uh, community hub. Uh, That's where our asylum support service is based. Um, We do a lot of casework helping people through with their asylum claims, uh, there's also a, a shared open office space, which um, hosts other small grassroots organisations from around the area. Uh, a women's space, which is run in collaboration by the, with the United African Women's Organisation, who have been um, active in, in Athens in Kipseli for quite, quite a long time now. Um, and uh, a, a creative maker's space with like jewellery making and fabric work and stuff. Uh, yeah. That's horror. Um, and the other one, <laughs> the, the, the more educational one, um, is for the last eight months or so, I've been uh, working in, in second school, 
uh, which is slightly confusingly named because it's not a school, it's a squat. Uh, it's called Second School because it's an old school building. All the schools in Athens are, are numbered. Um, uh, so, so this is was a, a um, self-organized refugee squat housing around about 300 people, families and single men. Um, yeah, and we uh, had an educational project in there, uh, a classroom where we did classes for the kids, um, those that for one reason or another were not registered uh, to go to Greek school, perhaps because they're undocumented or didn't have the necessary vaccinations and so on. Um, and those are the main things that I occupy myself with at the moment. Oh, I should say that I, I'm talking about second school in the past tense because it was actually evicted. Oh dear, and I imagine that was not a friendly eviction. No, it was evicted two weeks ago, um, and yeah, all the residents put in buses and bussed off to a, a new temporary camp uh, just outside Corinth, which is about two hours away. Um, the, the Greek government at the moment is building quite a lot of these temporary camps because, well, they're, they're clearing the squats um, and they're also trying to clear the islands and there's also an increase in arrivals from Turkey at the moment. Uh, so the, the state's plans are not entirely clear, although they have... Re- sorry. Oh, sorry. Um, I was going to just ask, so what are the conditions like in these camps? Like, how, how is it for the, you know, obviously it must be horrific. Like, what is it like? I don't... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the eviction, um, they, yeah, all the residents were put in buses and bus off were first taken to the the big police station. Um, those without papers were taken to detention centres. Um, those with papers taken to this new camp at Corinth. Meanwhile, all their belongings were thrown out of the windows into dump trucks and driven away to the municipal dump. That's um, horrendous. This so, camp at Corinth um, is basically an enormous tract of empty, so, um, muddy land with some military tents uh, where they're being housed and were being delivered, I think, possibly one or two meals a day by the army. These meals consisted of uh, boiled rice and a piece of boiled cauliflower. Um, a few days ago, they staged a protest against the, you know, the conditions of, of in particular, the food, um, and then the army just turned around and drove away, so they didn't get any food at all that day. That's horrific. Um, in yeah. terms of provision um, for the children, there's, yeah. there's, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing there. Um, at the moment, independent volunteers can get in. Um, it's an IOM-run camp, which means that when IOM get their asses together, they'll install guards and gates and they won't let anyone in anymore. So um, just for clarification, who or what is IOM? Uh, sorry, the Institute of Migration, the, the Greek uh, department responsible for for refugees. Um, this is a temporary camp, so they the res- that they will be moved on to other camps. Um, some already have gone to Scaramaga. There's, I think, some have been taken up to Ioannina, which is very far away. Like you know, four or five hours away. And you have to remember that, okay, so I was working in this classroom, working with the kids who were not going to Greek school, but a fair number of the the children in the squad were going to Greek school. And so they've just been, you know, removed from their classes and their friends and driven, you know, many hours away to somewhere that they don't know anything about. And also the community, I mean, this was a community of, you know, 300 or so people, it's, it's a transient population in the squats, but some people live there for a long time and they form obviously a community. 
there's been deliberately torn to pieces. So sending different families to different camps uh, and so on. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, not, it's not a very nice situation here at the moment. So Alex, um, you know, when we heard about your fantastic workout in Athens, um, we uh, have arranged uh, for a donation to the charitable groups that you're the treasurer of. Um, could you talk to us um, a little bit about what that money from a trade union is going to achieve out, out where you're working? Um, yeah, so this is from a separate project uh, uh, called Love and Serve Without Boundaries, um, based in Patissia in, in Athens. I don't directly work for them, but I am friends with the woman who runs it, Maria, uh, who is herself a refugee from Kenya. Um, this project started as a street outreach program, uh, feeding the homeless around Victoria Square, essentially. It now has premises um, where they do classes, language classes for kids, um, again, for ones who are not registered to Greek school and also homework support and language support for ones who are registered to Greek school. The problem that she approached me with was that she's got this um, this class of kids who are freshly registered to start Greek school uh, this term, but because they're refugees, they don't have any money. So they don't have any school supplies um, and they need a bag, some pens, some exercise books, that kind of thing. So we you agreed to help to buy these things for them, which is great. And uh, we would, be very happy. you know, we would encourage uh, any trade unionists listening to this podcast, you need to approach your local division or district and uh, consider getting them to do the same sort of thing. Um, you know, we will drop uh, links to uh, Dr. Alex Collins uh, or various organisations in the episode description. Um, it's just something that we consider a part of uh, being a good trade unionist is supporting worthy projects. A good activist. I'm going to hand over to uh, Nick, who's got some follow-up questions about the situation in Greece. Uh, so could you um, talk to us a little bit about the change in the political climate um, since the new government has been elected? How has that, how has that appeared um, where you are? Yeah, so <clears throat> my Greek is not great. In fact, it's terrible, which means that I obviously can't really listen to the politicians and, and hear what they're saying. But the physical situation on, on the ground in Athens, it is very noticeable. You know, Syriza were not great. That was the previous party. Um, New Democracy are now in power, who are pretty much literally a bunch of fascists and it is you know very quickly there's been for example a massive increase in armed police presence around central Athens there's this <clears throat> current program of squat evictions so there were lots of squats particularly around Exarchia but also in the surrounding area um, of a mixture of types so political squats some which people lived in some that were uh, or are social centres um, but also self-organised refugee squats uh, of which second school where I was working was one there was also fifth school uh, clandestina was another one Hotel Nero, which hasn't yet been evicted um, you might have heard of City Plaza that was one of the most famous um refugee squats in Athens. Uh, these have pretty much all been evicted now over the last month or so uh, with varying degrees of violence. Um, and yeah, it, so the area Exarchia historically has been a place where it's understood that the police don't go in. It's a kind of quote unquote anarchist controlled area. Um, the police are very much in Exarchia now with guns beating people up. 
um, and being generally horrible. Um, <clears throat> another little thing that changed, but it was a kind of symbolic thing, I suppose, was that ever since the, the fall of the, the dictatorship in Greece, um, universities have been a, a veto area for police. They're not allowed to enter. Um, that was one of the first things that changed when New Democracy came in, an end to that. Um, they've also just announced their programme of what they want to uh, do with the refugee situation, um, and as you can imagine, it's pretty grim. It's basically close all of the camps, turn them into closed detention centres, um, and then try and deport as many people as they can. Like to a way of concentrating people into camps, like a kind of concentration camp, that sounds yeah, like. a little bit like that, yes. Um, I have a question uh, that I was going to ask. So obviously we talked about the broader difficulties in Athens and Greece and it sounds, you know, so terrible uh, for everyone. But specifically, obviously, with being an education uh, podcast, um, part of the reason why we've asked to speak to you is is what's going on with the children. Um, You said about the school or not so school, the education programme that you ran, uh, but you also must know a bit about um, what children are experiencing in general. We've touched on a little bit, but what do you see as being the major difficulties children are facing day to day and when they're accessing the education that uh, you've been providing, uh, what are you seeing coming out from that as well as being challenging? That's quite big. I know. Um, what, are their, what are their main things? I mean, they've got nothing, right? These are kids whose families are in process of an asylum claim or who are even undocumented and so quote-unquote illegal. Like, if they are stopped by the police and found without papers, then they will be put in a detention centre and probably deported. Um, So they don't have any money. They live in a squat. Like, you know, (laughs) Um, obviously, along with that, there's the the language issue. I mean, they they don't speak Greek and usually very little English. Um, Yeah. So these are big difficulties. Um, And then, of course, you can also talk about trauma. Like, most of them have been through quite a lot. Uh, Yeah, of pretty pretty grim stuff. How do do you find them... You don't flee your country for no reason. How do you find them uh, reacting to learning? Do do they find it as a kind of release from their lives? Do do you find they engage with the topics you're you're, you're doing with them? Yes, the maths classes that I was running in that classroom were, were lovely. They were so nice. Um, and if you manage to set up a consistent program, you know, and be there every day at the same time and, and, you know, run a classroom, then yeah, they love it. Like you'd come in in the morning and there they all come running up, teacher, teacher, mathematic, mathematic. And then, (laughs) yeah. That's amazing. What, what kind of, um, have you had any moments where you've had a bit of a flash of um, just sort of realising intense similarity? Has there been anything that you've seen out in Greece where you've thought, this is exactly the same as the British classroom? Is there anything that comes across like that? <laughs> um, no, really? not really. <laughs> I mean, so, I mean, the other difference is that with the work I was doing at second school, um, it was... Mm, yeah, primary age. So I was a secondary school teacher, but we were essentially running a primary classroom, um, which I, I don't have experience of in the UK. So probably there, there were similarities to a primary classroom, um, but but not not really to how I did lessons 
in England. Maybe you should come back and uh, be a primary school teacher. Maybe that was all. Maybe that was, that was all, all that was wrong. Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I doubt it. Somehow, I do have friends who are primary school teachers, and I've heard. It's not a piece of cake. Um, I know someone that's recently quit primary teaching because just it was just too soul crushing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm a primary school teacher, and something that I've found going to lots of schools is that um, you do come across refugee children, um, but often uh, very little is known about the details about where they came from, and so that makes it really difficult to have those conversations about like what they might have gone through with them. Do you find that you're able to talk to them about their experiences, or do you kind of just stick to the the learning at hand? I mean. <laughs> Yes, you can sometimes, but you you need to be very careful, right, about opening up past trauma. Like, you know, if you've known a kid for quite a long time, then they might want to talk to you about some of the stuff that happened to them, but it's not really a topic that you'd want to introduce, I don't think. Well, I wouldn't anyway. Um, so what do you think um, lessons you've learned about how we as primary and secondary school teachers in the UK who are teaching refugee children, is there any sort of bits of advice you would say, actually, this is something that I know or actually, I think this is something we should avoid? Is there any sort of tips and tricks you have for making it a bit better and a bit easier for them? Or is it just... I, think, I, I don't think I've got much useful, really. I mean, it's it's the context, isn't it? Like when the, the refugee children that you encounter in England are, are isolated, you know, they're, they're plonked down in a classroom full of white kids, mostly, or not white kids, but not refugee kids. They probably don't share a language. And so that's a very particular experience compared to the, the classroom that we were running in this squat where, okay, they didn't all speak the same language, but you know, there was a group of them that spoke Comanji, a group of them that spoke Farsi. And, and so, you know, I, I keep going back to language. It's a massive thing, right? And I think that is a problem for, for refugee children in the UK that, you know, if they come from Kurdistan, then XYZ local comprehensive school is not going to have a Comanji translator, is it? Absolutely, yeah. I no and we're back to resourcing. Them. Yeah, absolutely. And we don't have enough people who are able to yeah share a language uh, with the sheer volume of children coming from all over the world in, in any given school. And yeah. I mean, this is certainly a problem that I noticed or, or thought in the English education system was, yes, the complete under-resourcing of pastoral care. Like, these kids need a lot of support and there just isn't the, the resources there to give it to them. Absolutely. Do you think it would help, um, at least um, obviously more resources for them, but do you also think it would help if teachers themselves had more of an understanding about where these children came from uh, and possible political and economic histories of those countries? It's something that sort of occurred to me that often if by chance um, a teacher actually knows what language they speak, they might not even know the refugee child's country of origin or have very little details about them. Do you think it would help for schools to try and do more CPD around that? Like, that's continued professional development for any lessons. Do you think that would help? Yes, sounds great. I do have slightly mixed feelings about CPD generally, but um, if it was done well, then, then yeah, that, that would be good, I think. Uh, got another question here. Um, given the extremely challenging circumstances in which you work, what is it about what you're doing that makes it less, uh, your quote, soul-crushing, uh, than working in mainstream UK classroom? Um, what's good about it? What's good about it? You know, seeing them seeing them enjoy maths and achieve is is really nice. And knowing that 
if it wasn't for us in there doing that, they would have literally nothing. Um, you know, you feel like you're doing good work, right? And also you don't have a, a, a head of maths. Um, <laughs> talking shit you to are you. the head of maths. So do you have uh, room for six more? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's... I just it's really interesting listening to what you're saying because I am currently teaching a uh, a refugee from Afghanistan who um you know has been here for I think two years and was just telling me that you know he'd come and and that you know he he did not have no English he had no English at all when he started and he's kind of you know he's built up English done really really well um and I just it's really nice to hear you say that like and give me kind of sort of insight into what they're going through because as Charlie said earlier actually where is the real training where where's the teacher's awareness of what these kids are going through it seems like an afterthought you know it's just something that's tacked on and and actually to hear you speak about the experiences and that that you're going you know that you are you know experiencing at the moment is yeah really amazing and yeah well done <laughs> um so Alex um I think we may have uh, concluded this interview. Was there any other questions we wanted to ask? Or anything you wanted to share or add? Um, I, I can't think of anything right now. What, what, could, uh, what could incentivize you back into UK education? <laughs> what, 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 what changes would have to be made to get you to sign back on the dotted line? What, Alex, requires improvement? Uh, um... Halve the class sizes at least, double the number of teachers, um, sack all of the head teachers. Uh, that that would be a start. Nice. That's an interesting menu of policies there. I absolutely agree. Um, just since we can link up all our episodes together, and I think those are like really good policies we should definitely implement. Um, we've recently got Labour talking about a four-day week as well. So the idea of you know every single worker rather than doing you know forty hours doing thirty-two instead um, would that incentivise you back? And what do you think of that? You know, it's it's a great sounding policy on paper. One does worry about these things a little bit, a little bit like the, the you know the proposal to have lots more um, bank holidays and hol- you know festive things. Like, great, that sounds great, but then you realise that actually, is everybody really going to have a four day week? Because who's going to be driving the buses on the days? Who's going to be you know running the shops? I think in fact Robots. a lot of service workers will find that they've got exactly the same. I guess it's, it, is, it is linked up, obviously, as I think uh, Leah's robot's point makes out, is it obviously linked to automation and possibly a redistribution of um, that work. But yeah, no, I think it's a definitely a good point. We can't just say it and, and think that just by throwing it out there, it'll just stick. But yeah, no, I think that's a very good point. But yeah. As a communist, I think really none of this stuff is going to work under capitalism. Excellent. So Great proposition. True saying. Start all of our sentences. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, so um, if you are interested in researching uh, the organisations that uh, Alex is currently working with, uh, we will be dropping uh, links to their websites in the show description. So um, on behalf of um, the show and my fellow hosts, I'd like to extend our sincere thanks to uh, Dr. Alex Collins for uh, joining us on today's show and giving us such fantastic insights into his work out there, very worthy activities. We are giving you a big old red salute from over here. Um, anything, anything, any final comments, Alex? Um, no, keep, keep fighting the good fight. Um, 
maybe one day we'll win. But I, I, I'm filled with hope. So. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. So thank you for listening to Requires Improvement. I've been your host, Lee. And today we've been joined by our guest, Dr. Alex Collins, as well as co-hosts, Nick, Charlie, Lauren. You can find us on Twitter at at requirespod. Please rate us and share. Thanks very much. Bye-bye Solidarity, Alex. Bye. 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 Yes, yes. <laughs>